1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm joined today by... Our regulars in sunny California, Corey Shockey at Stanford University, and today in Canada, visiting a secret location, Rosa Brooks, and with us here in the studio, David Sanger of the New York Times and Edward Luce of the Financial Times. I'm going to kick off the discussion this week with two events of last week. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Comey hearings. Then we're going to segue smoothly, Ed, into a discussion of the election that took place in the UK and also the election that took place in France over the weekend. But let's, let's start with Comey. David, as you look back on the media hubbub of last week, was there really a big story there?
2: You know, sometimes the story is hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. And that's what the remarkable part of last week was. Here you had an FBI director, former FBI director, who said three things that were significant to hear straight from him. First, that he was deeply uncomfortable from the beginning dealing with Donald Trump. So uncomfortable that he went off to go take notes after each meeting because, as he said, he feared that the president might lie about future meetings. Secondly, that he felt direct pressure from the president in that conversation, which Mr. Trump has since denied, in which Trump said, if you believe the Comey uh, version of events – that he hopes that he could find his way clear to just drop the investigation into Michael Flynn, the former National uh, Security Advisor. This took place just a day or two after uh, Flynn resigned. That was significant because Comey said he interpreted it as an order, even though the president said he didn't issue it. And the president's son said, well, he might have said it, but if he did, it, well, it wasn't really an order. It was sort of more like a wish.
1: Right. And he said he used the word hope. So, so it I wasn't an order. He was yeah, just hoping he, was hoping he would do this. Right,
3: right, right. right. Um, uh, and along the lines of, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Yes, a little like that.
1: That came that came <laughs> up last week. <laughs> Senator <laughs> Angus King. Needless it up. to
0: say, my heart was set a flutter when somebody quoted uh, Thomas. Quoted Henry II talking about Thomas Beckett. And
2: would you have bet, Corey, that it would have been the senator from Maine who would do that? And then I think there was a third um, significant element to this. What was the overall purpose of firing James Comey? It was in the president's mind to rid himself of this Russia investigation. So Comey says he wakes up one night after seeing the Trump tweet that says he better hope there are no tapes – Lordy, I hope they're tapes, he responded. But he said he woke up one night and he said, I better get my story out. And if I get my notes out, which he did through a Columbia University professor who used to work for him, if he got that out, he said, this was remarkable, somebody actually admitting their motives in a Washington hearing, it will result in the appointment of a special counsel. That's exactly what happened. He turns these notes out within a few days. Rod Rosenstein appoints uh, uh another former IBA, uh, another former FBI director uh, Bob Mueller as the special counsel, thus assuring that Donald Trump, whether he's exonerated in the end of this or not, is going to have a year or a year and a half of misery while Mueller's investigation goes on and so in the end. The FBI director has foiled the main reason for which he was fired.
1: So, Rosa, you know, when I listened to David's description, Comey said he was really uncomfortable being alone with Trump and that he was feeling a lot of pressure from Trump. And it sounds like Comey was having the experience of every woman who's ever spent any time with Trump. Um, that was
3: exactly what I thought. <laughs> I thought <was> going to <laughs> <the> club. <yeah. laughs> no woman in her right mind would want to be alone with Donald Trump. There, there is that one moment that was described, uh, not in, not in Comey's notes, but it was in a blog post uh, uh, by, by our friend Ben Wittis, friend a friend of Deep State Radio, uh, who's a friend of Comey's that Comey describes to Ben Wittes uh, going to the White House and being so fearful that Trump would notice him and single him out that he, uh, he's wearing a navy blue suit and he notices that the drapes in the room are the same shade. So he decides to stand in front of the drapes in the hopes that he'll sort of blend right in and Trump will be unable to distinguish <laughs> him from the, from the this, furniture. This is a
1: business opportunity. I think people could sell dresses for White House soirees designed to blend into the curtains so you would avoid being harassed <laughs> by the president.
2: I think if right. you're going to go camel, to a Trump a event, it means dress clauses. in gold. <laughs> it's
1: all, it's all Cambo. We don't know how it's going to be redecorated because Melania moved in over the weekend um, with Barron, so things will change, I'm sure. In the context of the White House, Rosa, just I cut you off. Do, do what? What was your big takeaway from Comey?
3: Uh, it's very similar to David's. I, I think he got it exactly right. That. Say it that again not, please not nothing <laughs> uh, David, you are absolutely right. Uh, it is not normal for a president a few months into their term to have the just ousted director of the FBI say I had to keep notes and leak them to the press because I was so frightened that this president was going to lie. Uh, you know I think it it's indicative of the the fear that so many career, Government employees are feeling and the sense of total dislocation and the sense that if none of the normal rules seem like they apply anymore. And I, as ever, I mean this is not particularly original at this stage. But uh, it's not the crime; it's the cover up. Uh, it may turn out that the Russia stuff is is more smoke than fire, but Trump has already made it clear in his in his actions vis-a-vis Comey uh, that he is able to dig himself in perpetually deeper. We've seen that in many other situations, of course, um, but by, by a combination of lying, browbeating, bullying, and crazy tweets. So yeah, he's, he's definitely created a situation for himself that was completely avoidable, frankly, um, completely avoidable situation in which he now is a special counsel and even an increasing number of Republicans in Congress thinking, uh-oh, something really bad has happened here.
1: So, Corey, this puts us in an interesting place, a place that actually the United States has never been in. We have a president of the United States who's been in office for six months or so, and already there's a special counsel investigating him. Uh, This week, the week of this podcast, uh, two state attorneys general are launching a case against the president for violating the emoluments clause – of the United States Constitution. Uh, Several members of his cabinet are being investigated or of his advisory team are being investigated uh, for this Russia thing. Certainly Paul Manafort, his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who's already had to leave office. Um, uh, Who knows who else? Jared Kushner is a person of interest in this, his son-in-law. So there is this swirl of legal activity, suspicions, and doubts hanging over the head of this president, a cloud, as he put it in the conversation with Comey. And yet there's almost no scenario in which Trump leaves office in less than a year and a half or two years. And so what we really have the prospect of, and I think this is the thing that may be most relevant to us who look at sort of world affairs, is of a really, really – Historically weak U.S. president, and then you combine that with the fact that he actually has no foreign policy experience, really isn't interested in anything that isn't part of his life or that reflects well on him, um, and and it creates a a picture we've we, we we've never seen for how America is going to play on the world stage. Do you want to comment on that or reflect on it?
0: Oh, sure. So I was at the Double I Double S. Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore a couple of weeks ago. As we established
1: in an defense, earlier podcast. Yeah,
0: At which we saw this play out exactly as you're saying, David, right? Like the defense secretary gave a solid internationalist speech, and every question he got asked was, how can we believe you given the president's behavior? and And so... It raises a whole host of questions. I mean, first of all, how long can it go on that members of the cabinet can credibly represent their views as American foreign policy when the president's views and actions are so different? Cutter, uh, the, the improleo over Cutter with the president, Uh, slamming the gas pedal to the floor while the secretaries of state and defense uh, try and draw him back was, I think, only the latest example. The second thing I think we see from this is other countries realizing that that the American-led international order isn't going to be American-led in the Trump administration and may not even be order. And so... Uh, So a lot of them begin to talk about hedging, right? The foreign minister of Canada gave a speech talking about how, you know, they need to make policy without regard to the United States. The German chancellor gave a speech in which she said, you know, Europe needs to take care of itself now because others aren't reliable. And the Australian prime minister basically said the same thing in his big speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue. The challenge for those countries and for the international order is that actually there's a reason it takes a hegemon to to police the international order.
1: There's a great Having book title. A force there's that a can great book title for you, Corey. It takes it a hegemon. Takes a hegemon. <laughs> it takes a hegemon. <laughs> it
0: takes a hegemon. You might if <laughs> I go out and try to sell
2: that while you guys figure finish the podcast. I do not. It is <laughs> my <laughs> gift to you, David. Buena suerte.
0: <laughs> Hedging
4: the hegemon. But right, the, so Canada up, spends
0: About 1.4% of its GDP on its military, and by admission of their own defense white paper released last week, they lack the ability to go into combat without partners, by which they mean the United States. And the same is true for almost everybody else. And so the challenge for those who... I admire for wanting to step forward and fill the space the United States is leaving. I'm in favor of the international order uh, being sustained even without the United States. And in a weird way, it may be the measure of our success that the order is perpetuable without us. But, but it takes a lot more than those countries are bringing to the table right now to be able to, to manage it. And so there's a lot of hard work ahead of them.
1: Well, let's, that's, a, that's a subject that I'd actually like to come back to and dwell on uh, a little bit more. It ties in a little bit, Ed, to your book, you know, the decline of Western liberalism, although I would argue that what we're really talking about here is whether or not we've hit a momentary pause in the Pax Americana or actually the end of the Pax Americana. And I think that's a legitimate question. But just let's go back to the last week's high drama um and I, again i know it doesn't compare to that of your home country with the election and the surprising results and so forth but but talking to people from outside the united states and having the perspective from outside the united states uh what is what is this what is a thing like the comey thing playing like so i think that the
4: of the many statements that Comey made, uh, both in his written um, testimony and and then in his answers to senators questioning, the many statements he made about the president, um, the statement where he said it's in the nature of this man, in the nature of this man, that you cannot trust him, the nature of the man, I think is what the world is picking up on and responding to. Um, Quite aside from any larger questions about Pax Americana, um, I think Uh, that the world has now finally digested that there's no axis of adults that is going to make up for the fact that this is the nature of the character who is now in the White House. Uh, And Comey pretty much should have nailed that in many different ways. Um, His reasons for taking contemporaneous notes, his reasons for getting out those notes via the Columbia law professor and so forth, that this man is inherently unreliable, untrustworthy, mendacious, narcissistic, impulsive, and so on and so forth, none of which are hyperbolic comments.
1: I, I, by the way, I think that's actually right, with all due respect to David, who listed a number of things that were also stories. To me, this big overarching story was the former FBI director said, I don't trust the character of the president of the United States. Well, that was in point one in
2: why he had to sit down and take these notes that he never took when Obama was president. Right.
1: But I mean, it's, 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 it's quite an extraordinary turn of events that it is now a given, whether you're you know, in Asia with Corey or you're in Canada with Rosa or you're in the UK or you're in Germany or you're in France or you're in China or you're in the Middle East, that the president of the United States is going to be under legal pressure for the next couple of years, is a liar, has a deeply flawed character, is terminally narcissistic, and doesn't know anything at all about the job of being president. And you know, a story broke last week, uh, actually in, uh, through my former employer, Foreign Policy, about The fact that as bad as the public side of Trump's visit was to the NATO summit, the private side was worse, that he actually did much worse behind the scenes, and people were aghast at what he said and how he behaved at the dinner. Um, Rosa, did you pick up on any of that stuff? Did you follow that?
3: I did. That was amazing. Not particularly surprising to find out that Trump has very bad manners in private as well as in public. Uh, I don't think we were shocked, but, no, I, I, David, I think your point is right. I, I think the world is, the world has some experience dealing with crazy people who have power, <laughs> ranging from, uh, you know, the North Korean leader to Iranian leaders to Idi Amin. The world is just not don't, accustomed and to having the don't, United don't, States forget and, <laughs> don't
1: forget Kanye West.
3: Don't forget Kanye West. You know, the world is just not accustomed to having one of those crazy people be at the helm of the United States of America rather than at the helm of a country that doesn't frankly matter quite as much to the world order. And and I I think that around the world, whether it's here in Canada uh, or whether it's uh, in Europe or in Asia, I I suspect that intelligence analysts and, and policymakers are huddling and saying, okay, what is our containment strategy? Uh, for the president of the United States, you know, we're hoping I, I'm sure that they are hoping as hard, as fervently as so many Americans are that uh, after the midterm elections, perhaps something changes and there's an impeachment or if not that they're just thinking, OK, three and a half more years. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I suspect that their strategy is, is, is shifting implicitly and increasingly explicitly from a strategy of how do we how do we leverage U.S. power to how do we contain
1: this crazy guy until it's over? So, so, David, you know, one of the things that strikes me, you know, we have throughout our whole lives referred to the president of the United States as the most powerful man in the world. Some of us had been hoping that we'd be able to refer to the president as the most powerful woman in the world. It didn't work out that way. Uh, maybe next time. Uh Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Kristen Gillibrand. We could we could go, okay, never mind. Uh, but let's <laughs> we'll come back to that. Course. Thank you for that course. <laughs> uh, but, but but but, but let's just let's just take this a step further. The President of the United States, who controls the most powerful military in the world, the most powerful nuclear arsenal in the world, has. The
3: capacity. Uh, I'm so glad that you didn't forget about nuclear apocalypse. I would have been very disappointed if you had. There's
1: no, a I reason you're it. in Canada, right? Everybody knows you're silo hunting. I'm sure we'll come back to that soon. But, but, but the but the point is, he's got the ability to um, exercise power in certain very limited circumstances. But implicit in the idea of the president being the most powerful man in the world was the idea of the president being the most influential man in the world uh, or the most influential leader in the world. And what we seem to be describing here is a scenario in which the president of the United States won't be the most influential person in the world. Do you think that thesis is right? And if that's the case, who, who, who will be? Well, it's certainly right
2: that he's creating a vacuum. It's not necessarily right that there's someone poised right now to come in and fill that vacuum as the single biggest voice, and I think one of the big questions. David is, is
0: exactly is, right. See. I,
2: oh. I love having Corey on on the show.
1: You know, we you can know. we can edit this any way you want, so it always sounds like I'm the one who's exactly right. But
2: but it wouldn't be believable to our 11 it, it, listeners. It's true.
1: <laughs> it's, it's true; they're very very discerning nerds. It's a very discerning army of nerds out there, except for the ones who are too deep into the box wine to tell.
2: That's right. So um, <laughs> so let's let's think about what creates the vacuum first, and then let's look for a minute about who could fill in. Um, As we discussed last time, the climate change agreement pulls the United States back from a discussion that everybody else in the world is having and just cuts us out of it. The haranguing of the NATO members, while fully justified that they have to contribute more, has not been matched with a rethinking about what else it is that NATO should be doing in which they could contribute. And some of their big contributions could be in a non-military way. And the obvious one is countering Russian influence, much of which isn't terribly expensive. Cyber, influence operations, so forth. So that's another area where the U.S. is pulling back. A the trade, trade is it? The third area is is trade for sure. And in that territory, at least he is maintaining – some role because he says he wants to go renegotiate NAFTA, so he's going to have to be at the table. But in other areas like the TPP, he's just basically pulled out and hasn't come up with an idea to to replace it with.
1: If I, if I may just interject a footnote as just part of the service we provide on Deep State Radio. Anybody who has not watched Vicente Fox's little video last week that he sent to <laughs> President Trump – Stop what you're doing and go watch that and then come back to this episode. That's right.
0: Pause this this episode and go watch it.
1: That may have been the most hilarious thing I've seen all week, but it just goes to show, you know, he may be engaging in NAFTA, but this is a whole new NAFTA because the last time Canada and Mexico came kind of as supplicants to the big muscular power this time Canada and Mexico feel kind of pretty independent and full of their own beans this
2: is this is why Rosa is in Canada right now because she wants to be in the biggest power center of of uh, of the continent. That's right
1: she's probably at a Tim Hortons which is the biggest power center <laughs> in Canada
2: um,
3: then, uh, so, oh, oh, wait a minute. Don't be mean about Canada. We are all going to need to live here someday. It will be very, very
2: nice to in no, We don't need to live here. And we're they're
0: going to be our food provider yes, once global your, warming advances. We're
2: just using your guest room at the top of the silo. So, um, okay, so, 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 uh, so that's the vacuum created. So then the question is, who fills it in? Well, Xi Jinping is the obvious one because he's going around the world portraying himself as uh, the uh, the great avantar of, of free trade, human rights, uh, and development around the world, which is pretty laughable in and of itself. Vladimir Putin doesn't strike me as somebody whose model is so successful or appealing that he's likely to be able to step in. And we have a series of European leaders right now who are busy trying to hold on to their jobs, starting, uh, as, as Ed will, will tell us, with Prime Minister May. So um, – I don't see any any European leader stepping up except regionally. And there, it's Angela, it's Angela Merkel. So we, he may luck out in that uh, he's pulling back, but no one's ready to go assert the kind of role the U.S. had.
1: So, Corey, this is my opportunity to say I think David is absolutely wrong. Um, and, <laughs> he's and, been waiting <laughs> for that all day. But I- – and we're only 20 minutes he's been in. waiting for that
0: for years, David. Yeah, he's been it's waiting seldom, for years. It so
1: seldom happens. But, but I throw it out to you <laughs> or Rosa or Ed. You know, to me, what he's saying is nobody else is in the position to be the most influential person in the world everywhere in the world. But when the void is created, you may end up with a different situation, which is in fact regional. Or which as as you say, David, you know, I think Merkel is is the most influential voice in Europe. And, and clearly in Asia. And and, and and transatlantic and Xi Jinping you know, in 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 and certainly in Asia, and on a host of trans-Pacific issues, and on environmental issues, where they're spending more and doing more than, than other people. So the decline of America's leader with particularly American type of influence doesn't necessarily mean that he will be supplanted by other leaders with the same. It just means he's going to have less relative influence on different issues and other people will have more.
0: So um, I am in the Solomonic position of having to choose between Davids. Uh, and and Is so I hard? will take a Solomonic I would take a Solomonic solution, and which cut is cut one David to... in half? <laughs> 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 if
1: so, I volunteer, I volunteer David Sanger yeah. to be cut in half. Anyway, go ahead.
0: <laughs> so I am going to finesse that as best I can by, by going to Tom Wright's terrific new book, about the international order and what the failure of American leadership means. He argues, and I think he's right, that American hegemony is actually the uh, – our, our global dominance is a function of the collective of our regional dominances. And and so you can magically both be right, right? Because Isn't David Sanger – She's I, amazing. Yeah. David She's amazing. Sanger you know, you should exactly... be in this government.
1: If you hadn't pissed off the president <laughs> by signing that damn letter, we'd all be in better place.
0: I thank you for that vote of confidence, fearless leader. <laughs> um, the The point, though, is that there may be regional leaders to step forward, but there is nobody who has the the influence across regions, right? Nobody in Europe is going to believe Xi Jinping is going to believe China's president uh, because he doesn't share their values, um, and and the Chinese could care less what the Europeans think about a whole host of region, regional issues. Uh, so so it's true that as the United States recedes, there's nobody to step forward. But David. Uh, Rothkoff is also right that there are global conversations going on that the United States is now absent from. The thing that I found most interesting internationally in the last week was that the president of China did not take the opportunity to meet with the American government's energy secretary, Rick Perry, at a climate meeting in China, but, but the president did make time to meet with the governor of California on that issue. That I think we may be seeing... you know, what Republicans have always wished for, which is genuine federalism challenging the uh, authority of the American federal government, but it's going to be in opposition to a Republican president's policies because so much of the country, which controls major parts of the economy, which has ideas for addressing global problems are stepping forward. So we're not just seeing the hedging of adversaries moving to fill the space. We're, we're seeing hedging and activity by American states, by civic groups, by collections of Americans independent of their federal government.
1: That heavy breathing that you guys can hear on this broadcast has got to be Steve Bannon going,
0: this is just what I wanted.
1: You know, in his whatever his Darth Vader like voice, because you know it, it's David.
0: It's, I really didn't need that visual.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. But but it's it isn't this Rose? Isn't this sort of the bannon esque fantasy of the collapse of the central government of the United States as a as a big actor and sort of you know sort of the re, the receding of the evil of big government in the United States and and letting the marketplace of global chaos you know make the decision about where we come out.
3: Yeah, it's it's Corey's made a really important point. Uh, and I, how Bannon is reacting is hard to say because as Corey suggested, the the substantive policies at issue have kind of flipped from the old Republican fantasy. But but I think I think number one, it's really important to be to be thinking about the ways in which, um, in that vacuum left by Trump being crazy, uh, not only are our other global and regional actors stepping in, but but states, U.S. states, are deciding essentially to conduct their own foreign policy as much as they can. And, and the only – this has happened before, right, that there's, there's always kind of a tussle between states and the federal government, and even though our constitution – Gives primacy to state to, to the federal government in all kinds of ways. As Corey suggested, There, we have a federal system and there are other ways in which states can get into the action. They did so at other periods in, in opposition to Republican governments as well. Think about the uh, Reagan era in which states um, uh, passed divestment resolutions to divest or apartheid South Africa at a time that the Reagan White House did not want them to do that. Um, so this is not completely new. But I think that what we, what is interesting, and this is, you know, moves us away from the realm of, of foreign policy as such, is going to be the long-term impact of this on, on the United States of America, because we're surely seeing a you know, greater fragmentation as certain, certain states loosely, you know, call them loosely the blue states, uh, band together to form essentially their own regional and trans-regional blocks with their own both domestic policy and foreign policy. And the, the red states, I think, in, in this circumstance are going to have less ability to do anything much constructive, partly because that's the nature of the, the ideology they're supporting. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens 10 years down the road as a result of this. It'll also be really interesting to see what the courts do. And this is, this is the area, I think, as, as Corey suggested in a way, um, where the the right may be sort of hoist on their own guitar at having, having successfully the one big success of the Trump administration thus far is getting Neil Gorsuch onto the Supreme Court. Um, Neil Gorsuch is a staunch federalist. How is the Supreme Court at this point going to decide on federalism cases that pit the, frankly, more progressive at this point states against the federal government of Donald Trump? Uh, it's not clear to me that Trump may not to regret appointing
1: Neil Gorsuch. Well, that's a very interesting point, Ed. You've distinguished yourself from other reporters in Washington and columnists by actually leaving Washington and going and reporting on, you know, other parts of the United States, including the Midwest, Indiana. You spent some time in Chicago, Illinois. You've spent, you've traveled around. I think actually, didn't you get into like an RV and? <laughs> road trip.
4: Uh, I, I just discovered I was too incompetent to actually execute the RV option, but yeah, sort of figuratively.
1: You speaking, did a road trip across lots
4: America. of road trips.
1: So, this is my question for you. Um, it seems like what we're saying here is that the world is is sort of had a uh, sea change in the way it views the American president. But the United States doesn't seem to have had a sea change, you know. The forty percent who support Trump, maybe thirty-seven percent now, but it's like they're there, and the other ones are still fighting with each other about whether whether you counteract Trump is, you know, centrism or 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 being what the New York Times refers to as the militant left. Um, and and but it, but it seems like. Everybody else understands that something big is happening here in the US, doesn't it? Why? Let, let me
4: first say that I, I agree with David and I disagree with David. Uh, I don't know which is which, but I think just definitionally that that has to be true. Uh, I'll fill that in later. Um, there is some evidence uh, from – from Na- You
1: know, I feel the same way myself when I'm alone. So. <laughs> I, David, I
4: refute you. Um The Nate Silver's numbers show that the base isn't quite as solid as we think that it might be sipping away. Now, whether it's a third of America, the Trump base or a quarter, or as low as a fifth, according to the more Nate Silver end of things, there is some evidence it isn't nearly as solid as as your your question might imply. Um, But the The road trips I've taken have sadly not been in the last five weeks since comey was fired and and I think that's the sea change and i' no doubt that you know the Trump normalizing axis of adult narrative was holding until that point and the world was banking on the likes of secretary mattis and mcmaster and to some extent although god knows why um secretary tillerson um to 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 be the axis of what does
1: secretary tillerson do actually
4: he 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 makes Damn sure never to utter anything because if he does, he knows within seconds it will be contradicted by the president. It's um, not true
2: today. Uh, it's he not true on gutter. He, he showed um, up. He showed up today at a cabinet meeting that looked a little bit like a hostage uh, video. And they went around the table, and everybody sort of everybody sort of said what an honor it was there to serve the president, what they wanted to go do, and he had two points. The president point no- has
1: very large hands. <laughs> it's, it's, it's surprisingly <laughs> huge hands.
2: The point number one was, our allies have
1: to do more.
2: And point number two was our adversaries must know that we're going to start negotiating with them from
1: a position of strength.
4: Our adversaries must do less, and our allies must do more. Is a it brilliant, was, by a the brilliant I, 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 I don't mean of it, diplomatic I, I, break, I, I, I didn't <laughs> want to get too far off, <laughs> uh,
1: but it was quite interesting in that cabinet meeting that President Trump, speaking with no notes because I don't think he can actually read, said that Qatar, the the, the Saudi move against Qatar was a sign of his policy success yet again, even after his cabinet was trying to roll it back. He was just stood there and he thumped his chest saying, yeah, man, that's me. That's all me. I
4: think the study in contrast hit the most sort of uh, revealing one in terms of how do you deal with Trump if you're trying to work for him. The impossible sort of challenge of working for Trump is between Nikki Haley and and, um, and Tillerson Um, because Nikki Haley clearly doesn't give a damn what Trump thinks when he contradicts uh, her and and says what she thinks Republican um, uh, foreign policy should be. Tillerson is terrified of of freelancing on any score because when he does, most recently, Carter, but pretty much mention any issue on which he's uh, made an utterance, Trump will either contradict him, humiliate him, qualify him or ignore him. And so he has zero credibility um, as a secretary of state, which is extraordinary. I mean, we've had... We've had people in that job who've had low credibility. I don't think we've ever had... Somebody occupy it with zero credibility, David. Well, David's one of whom I agree with, one of whom I disagree with. What do you think but about you this? Refuse and I say that say in advance fly. of hearing what you think. My <laughs>
1: <little bit. laughs> He's prospectively he ag- disagrees with one. Yes, yeah. because I know and you're not going to agree with, one with one each other. It's a big definition, oh, I'm right? We will. I guess we'll agree. I think that the only time that the Secretary of State of the United States has had less influence than Tillerson is when the position has been vacant.
4: <laughs> Are you. I thought you were going to say Warren Christopher. But, um, no, no.
1: <laughs> you know, Christopher was – You know, I had a boss once, a member of Congress. My very first job, I was a press secretary to a guy named Steve Solars who was a congressman from Brooklyn, a real foreign policy specialist. And Solars used to refer to Warren Christopher as the black hole of charisma. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and, and I actually thought by comparison, Warren Christopher –
2: did a pretty good job. I mean, when you he think did. back, he'll oh, his yeah. time. But I do remember while Warren Christopher was Secretary of State, something went wrong in the Middle East, and someone in the State Department said to me, This would have never happened if Warren Christopher was still alive.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's. Just, that's just. <laughs> Those, those, those jokes job. were – but I'll tell you something about but Warren in Christopher. in retrospect,
2: he was pretty damn good. No. You know what,
1: you know what else he was? He was deeply experienced. Yep. He had been deputy secretary of state. He knew how the State Department worked. He was deeply respected within the building. He
2: knew politics.
1: He knew politics. He had, he had been the chairman four of,
2: presidents or five American presidents. Right. He had
1: been the chairman of Clinton's campaign. And on top of all of he'd it – He had been in
2: the Kennedy can- administration.
1: But, but he was an ethical man. He was one of the most decent people I ever met in the United States government. And
2: I have no reason to believe actually that Tillerson is not a, a decent person. And those people who have no, dealt that with wasn't him, implying him that. tell me um, not only is he highly ethical, but that he understands the region pretty well. So then the question is, what has he done wrong here? And I would say three things. He has made the classic error that you can bring business experience and use it to change the U.S. government when the set of challenges and the set of motivations are completely different. He has failed to build up his own department, so he's operating as a little bit of an island. And thirdly, he has failed to tame his boss's language so that every time he walks out and says something, as he did on gutter on Friday, he gets undercut the next moment.
1: Listen, there's a word of advice. I circle back to the analogy I made with Rosa at the beginning, um, and that is – Stay, Just in stay, stay in Canada? Stay in Canada. Supposed to blame Canada. Also worth getting off and watching a version of Blame Canada again. But uh, no, it's one of the worst mistakes anybody can make in life in almost any circumstance is saying yes to Donald Trump. Rosa, you're in Canada.
3: <laughs> I am in Canada. I sure am.
1: Yeah. Um, what, what is the, what You're,
3: you're degree to you work for him.
1: No, no, yes, well, in any respect. Uh but but I'm sure Melania has a whole different perspective on this. But the it, Canada is like, you know, the, the closest country in the world to us. You're meeting with people in the government, you're talking to people there. It is the view there different from what we're talking about?
3: I don't think so, David. Uh, I'm I'm here for some meetings at the Canadian Ministry of Defence, and I think that the the views that were expressed in Christopher Freeland's speech last week. She's the, the Foreign Minister of Canada now, and a former journalist at Ed's publication. She was my um, former boss, uh, you know, in fact, our, at
4: the, at the FT here. So oh, yes.
3: Oh, I
1: did not know that. The FT okay.
4: lives on um, through Canadian uh, foreign policy.
1: Yeah, she also brutally ripped off a book I wrote once, but we'll get to that Oh, later. sorry.
2: <laughs> it does oh, tell you something, that when you think about being Ed Luce's boss, you decide it would actually be better to go be Foreign Minister of Canada. <laughs> uh, uh, you might think Celeste that I could possibly comment. demanding job,
0: Foreign Minister of Canada. <laughs> you don't
2: have to put up with as many people, you know. <laughs> well, sorry, sorry, Rosa.
3: There is Justin Trudeau, and I'm going to look into the whole issue of the hardened silos here in Canada as well.
1: Whoa, Um, the Justin Trudeau-hardened silo transition was uh, not one I'm really comfortable with here.
3: (laughs) Uh, David, David, I think you introduced this issue into one of our earlier podcasts. But anyway, I'm I'm going to say no more about Justin Trudeau, um, except uh, let me go back to Krista Freeland. Uh, David, you mentioned her speech last week earlier, and, and I think that the views that she expressed are, are very widely shared. There's a sense of, number one, holy shit, you know, what happened to the United States? They're going nuts. They're, they're you know, best, best case, they're AWOL. Worst case, they're flailing around, you know, like a wounded predator, uh, nastier than ever and more unpredictable than ever. Um, number two, after rehab, holy shit, is, um, uh-oh, we better step up which is, as as Corey said, is is a good thing. It's a good thing both for the world, ultimately in long run, probably a good thing for the United States and certainly a good thing for Canada. Uh, And they're trying to figure out how do you do that? If you're a country, Canada's population is about a tenth the size of the U.S. population. I think it's about 35 million people, 34 million, something like that, Uh, compared to the U.S. is almost 350 million. Uh, They've got more land, but they've got less people and less stuff, And they're now facing... You know, they have no prospect of imminently becoming a superpower. They don't want to become a superpower. But they're saying to themselves, you know, what are the dangers for us and the opportunities for us in the next few years, and and how do we realize them? And they're beginning, I think, to feel that they have to develop greater capacity to act on their own if necessary and to band together with other so-called middle powers. Uh, You know, in a world where the superpowers are AWOL, uh, the middle powers have to figure out how to group together to get some
1: things done. Excellent point. And uh, in fact, the condominium of middle powers um, raises the prospect that we reenter a world of balance of power politics and where diplomacy among middle powers becomes increasingly important. Um which is kind of ironic. you know. Henry Kissinger, who's sort of the godfather of American foreign policy, wrote his doctoral dissertation on Metternich and the Congress of Vienna and balance of power politics. And then almost immediately the Cold War began, and we went into a bipolar world and then a unipolar world. And now Henry, I think, is 94, and is in the waning days of his uh, uh, career, although he's still very active, and we're moving back into that Metternichian world uh, in some really I saw him the words. other day. He
2: seemed pretty happy about this, actually. Yeah, he's been waiting for <laughs> yeah, it.
4: I would know, the most famous, uh, my favorite ever uh, headline for a book review was a book review of Kissinger's Diplomacy. And it was in the Times of London. And it was entitled, From Metternich to Me, which I think... <laughs> but so,
1: he, you know, he's involved. <laughs> well, look, I want to talk about Christopher Friedland's speech, and I want to talk about its significance, and I want to talk about the British and the French elections. And I think we should do that in the next episode. I want to say one thing, though, before we end up this episode. First of all, the response of all of the deep state nerds out there who sort of got behind this thing and made it so successful so quickly, um, pushing us, rocketing us up above 90% of all podcasts in terms of Subscriptions within 24 hours just during our soft lunch, launch is incredibly appreciated. And we love the Twitter activity. We love the support. We love the humor. We love the attitude of all of you guys, most of you guys. There are a couple of you who are a you know, little stroppy. But the rest of you
4: – David, we, for example.
1: St- Sanger comes to mind. <laughs> uh, but the rest of you, we love – um, and and we, and we are grateful. And we're going to show our gratitude in the only way we know how, which is materialism, um, which is to say we this week will start receiving mugs and sweatshirts that say Deep State Radio on them on one side and property of the Ministry of SNARK on the other side. This is just the beginning, folks. We'll take your other –
3: Silos. Silos. We'll,
1: we'll take it. We'll take your other suggestions um, as, as we go. But these are the first wave. And next week, we will award five of these mugs, five mugs and shirts will go to extraordinary work for those of you who do the most to get the word out about Deep State Radio. We are going to, for the next, it's not going to be sob stories.
0: Weaponizing our nerds.
1: We that's amazing, We are going to weaponize our nerds, exactly. Um, thank you, Corey. That's pretty good. That's the second good book title that you've come up with in the course of this podcast. Um, <laughs> but we, we, what we want you to do is to put on your nerd thinking caps and open up your box juice and sit, uh, box wine, excuse me, depending on your age, your box wine or your box juice. And, 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 and we we want you to think of ways that you can get the word out and help keep the momentum going. And if you do and you put, tweet it or you email us or you, you know figure out some other way to communicate it to us, um, we will uh, – and we may establish in the next couple of weeks a Facebook page and some other kinds of things. So watch that space. But for now, Twitter, email, those kind of things come up with ideas and act on the ideas because we're not, we're, we're not going to send you a mug for just having an idea. You've got to do something about it. So that's, that's, that's where this all is. Uh, we will talk more about this in the episodes to come. In the meantime, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ed. And please join us again on Thursday and we'll post Thursdays podcast at 12.01 a.m. on Thursday, so you're ready for it. Um, Please join us again on Thursday for another great edition of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't...